Chapter 2 We have divers curious clocks, and other like motions of return. We have also houses of deceits of the senses, where we represent all manner of feats of juggling, false apparitions, impostures, and illusions. These are, my son, the riches of Solomon's house. Francis Bacon, The New Atlantis, Editor Raleigh, London, 1627, pages 41 to 42. I gained control of my nerves, my imagination. I had to play this ironically, as I had been playing it until a few days before, not letting myself become involved. I was in a museum and had to be dramatically clever and clear-headed. I looked at the now familiar planes above me. I could climb into the fuselage of a biplane to await the night as if I were flying over the channel, anticipating the Legion of Honor. The names of the automobiles on the ground had an affectionately nostalgic ring. The 1932 Hispano Suiza was handsome, welcoming, but too close to the front desk. I might have slipped past the attendant if I had turned up in plus fours and Norfolk jacket, stepping aside for a lady in a cream-colored suit with a long scarf wound around her slender neck, a cloche pulled over her bobbed hair. The 1931 Citroen C-64 was shown only in cross-section, an excellent educational display but a ridiculous hiding place. Cugnot's enormous steam automobile, all boiler or cauldron, was out of the question. I looked to the right, where velocipedes with huge Art Nouveau wheels and draisines with their flat scooter-like bars evoked gentlemen in stovepipe hats, knights of progress peddling through the Bois de Boulogne. Across from the velocipedes were cars with bodies intact, ample receptacles. Perhaps not the 1945 Panard Dina too open and narrow in its aerodynamic sleekness, but the tall 1909 Peugeot, an attic, a boudoir, was definitely worth considering. Once I was inside, deep in its leather divan, no one would suspect a thing. But the car would not be easy to get into. One of the guards was sitting on a bench directly opposite, his back to the bicycles. I pictured myself stepping onto the running board, clumsy in my fur-collared coat, while he, calves sheathed in leather leggings, doffed his visored cap and obsequiously opened the door. I concentrated for a moment on the twelve-passenger Obeissante, 1872, the first French vehicle with gears. If the Peugeot was an apartment, this was a building, but there was no hope of boarding it without attracting everyone's attention. Difficult to hide when the hiding places are pictures at an exhibition. I crossed the hall again, and there was the Statue of Liberty, Éclairant le monde, from a pedestal at least two meters high in the shape of a prow with a sharp beak. Inside the pedestal was a kind of sentry box from which you could look through a porthole at a diorama of New York Harbor. A good observation point at midnight, because through the darkness it would be possible to see into the choir to the left and the nave to the right, your back protected by a great stone statue of Gram, which faced other corridors from the transept where it stood. In daylight, however, you could look into the sentry box from outside, and once the visitors were gone, a guard would probably make a routine check and peer in, just to be on the safe side. I didn't have much time. They closed at 5.30. I took another quick look at the ambulatory. None of the engines would serve the purpose, nor would the great ship machinery on the right, relics of some Lusitania engulfed by the waves, nor Lenoir's immense gas engine with its variety of cogwheels. In fact, now that the light was fading, watery through the grey window panes, I felt fear again at the prospect of hiding among these animals, 
for I dreaded seeing them come to life in the darkness, reborn in the shadows in the glow of my flashlight. I dreaded their panting, their heavy, telluric breath, skinless bones, viscera creaking and fetid with black-greased drool. How could I endure in the midst of that foul concatenation of diesel genitals and turbine-driven vaginas, the inorganic throats that once had flamed, steamed, and hissed, and might again that very night? Or maybe they would buzz like stag beetles, or chur like cicadas amid those skeletal incarnations of pure, abstract functionality, automata able to crush, saw, shift, break, slice, accelerate, ram, and gulp fuel, their cylinders sobbing. Or they would jerk like sinister marionettes, making drums turn, converting frequencies, transforming energies, spinning flywheels. How could I fight them if they came after me, instigated by the masters of the world, who used them as proof? useless devices, idols only of the bosses of the lower universe, of the error of creation. I had to leave, get away. This was madness. I was falling into the same trap, the same game that had driven Jacopo Belbo out of his mind. I, the doubter. I don't know if I did the right thing two nights ago, hiding in that museum. If I hadn't, I would know the beginning of the story, but not the end. Nor would I be here now, alone on this hill, while dogs bark in the distance, in the valley below, as I wonder, was that really the end, or is the end yet to come? I decided to move on. I abandoned the chapel, turned left at the statue of Gram, and entered a gallery. It was the railroad section, and the multicolored model locomotives and cars looked like reassuring playthings out of a toyland, Madurodam, or Disney World. By now I had grown accustomed to alternating surges of anxiety and self-confidence, terror and skepticism. Is that perhaps how illness starts? And I told myself that the things seen in the church upset me because I was there under the spell of Jacopo Belbo's writings, writings I'd used so many tricks to decipher, even though I knew they were all inventions. This was a museum of technology, after all. You're in a museum of technology, I told myself, an honest place, a little dull, perhaps, but the dead here are harmless. You know what museums are, no one's ever been devoured by the Mona Lisa, an androgynous Medusa only for esthetes, and you are even less likely to be devoured by Watt's engine, a bugbear only for Ossianic and Neo-Gothic gentlemen, a pathetic compromise, really, between function and Corinthian elegance, handle and capital, boiler and column, wheel and tympanum. Jacopo Belbo, though he was far away, was trying to draw me into the hallucinations that had undone him. You must behave like a scientist, I told myself. A volcanologist does not burn like Empedocles. Fraser did not flee, hounded into the wood of Nemi. Come, you're supposed to be Sam Spade. Exploring the mean streets, that's your job. The woman who catches you has to die in the end, and if possible by your own hand. So long, Emily, it was great while it lasted, but you were a robot. You had no heart. The transportation section happened to be right next to the Lavoisier Atrium, facing a grand stairway that led to the upper floor. The arrangement of glass cases along the sides, the alchemical altar in the center, the liturgy of a civilized eighteenth-century macumba. This was not accidental, but symbolic, a stratagem. First, all those mirrors. Whenever you see a mirror, it's only human, you want to look at yourself. But here you can't. You look at the position in space where the mirror will say, you are here and you are you. You look, craning, twisting, but nothing works. 
because Lavoisier's mirrors, whether concave or convex, disappoint you, mock you. You step back, find yourself for a moment, but move a little and are lost. This catoptric theater was contrived to take away your identity and make you feel unsure not only of yourself, but also of the very objects standing between you and the mirrors, as if to say, you are not the pendulum or even near it. And you feel uncertain, not only about yourself, but also about the objects set there between you and another mirror. Granted, physics can explain how and why a concave mirror collects the light from an object, in this case an alembic in a copper holder, then returns the rays in such a way that you see the object not within the mirror, but outside it, ghost-like, upside down in mid-air, and if you shift even slightly, the image, evanescent, disappears. Then suddenly I saw myself upside down in a mirror. Intolerable. What was Lavoisier trying to say, and what were the designers of the conservatoire hinting at? We've known about the magic of mirrors since the Middle Ages, since Alhazen. Was it worth the trouble of going through the Encyclopédie, the Enlightenment, and the Revolution, to be able to state that merely curving a mirror's surface can plunge a man into an imagined world? For that matter, a normal mirror, too, is an illusion. Consider the individual looking back at you, condemned to perpetual left-handedness every morning when you shave. Was it worth the trouble of setting up this hall just to tell us this? Or is the message really that we should look at everything in a different way, including the glass cases and the instruments that supposedly celebrate the birth of physics and enlightened chemistry? A copper mask for protection in calcination experiments. Hard to believe that the gentleman with the candles under the glass bell actually wore that thing that looks like a sewer rat's head or a space invader's helmet just to avoid irritating his eyes. Quelle délicatesse, Monsieur Lavoisier! If you really wanted to study the kinetic theory of gases, why did you reconstruct so painstakingly the eolopile, a little spouted sphere that, when heated, spins, spewing steam, a device first built by Heron in the days of the Gnostics to assist the speaking statues and other wonders of the Egyptian priests? And what about this contraption for the study of necrotic fermentation, 1781, a fine allusion, really, to the putrid, reeking bastards of the Demiurge? A series of glass tubes that connect two ampules and lead through a bubble uterus, through spheres and conduits perched on forked pins, to transmit an essence to coils that spill into the void. Balnia marii, sublimination of hydrargyrum, mysterium conjunctionis, the elixir. Or this apparatus for the study of the fermentation of wine, a maze of crystal arches leading from athanor to athanor, from alembic to alembic. Those little spectacles, the tiny hourglass, the electroscope, the lens. Or the laboratory knife that looks like a cuneiform character, the spatula with the release lever, the glass blade, and the tiny three-centimeter clay crucible for making a gnome-sized homunculus, infinitesimal womb for the most minuscule clonings. Or the acajou boxes filled with little white packets like a village apothecary's cachets, wrapped in parchment covered with untranslatable ciphers, with mineral specimens that in reality are fragments of the holy shroud of Basilides, reliquaries containing the foreskin of Hermes Trismegistus, or the long thin upholsterer's hammer, a gavel for opening a brief judgment day, an auction of quintessences to be held among the elves of Avalon, or the delightful little apparatus for analyzing the combustion of oil, and the glass globules arrayed like quatrefoil petals, 
with other quatrefoils connected by golden tubes and quatrefoils attached to other crystal tubes leading first to a copper cylinder, then to the golden glass cylinder below it, then to other tubes, lower still, pendulous appendages, testicles, glands, goiters, crests. This is modern chemistry. For this the author had to be guillotined, though truly nothing is created or destroyed. Or was he killed to silence what his fraud revealed? The Salle Lavoisier in the Conservatoire is actually a confession, a confession in code, and an emblem of the whole museum, for it mocks the arrogance of the age of reason and murmurs of other mysteries. Jacopo Belbo was reasonably right. Reason was wrong. I had to hurry. Time was pressing now. I walked past the meter, the kilogram, the other measures, all false guarantees. I had learned from Allier that the secret of the pyramids is revealed if you don't calculate in meters but in ancient cubits. Then the counting machines that proclaimed the triumph of the quantitative but in truth pointed to the occult qualities of numbers, a return to the roots of the Notaricon the rabbis carried with them as they fled through the plains of Europe. Astronomy and clocks and robots. Dangerous to linger among these new revelations. I was penetrating to the heart of a secret message in the form of a rationalist theatrum. But I had to hurry. Later, between closing time and midnight, I could explore them, objects that in the slanted light of sunset assumed their true aspect. Symbols, not instruments. I went upstairs, walked through the halls of the crafts, of energy, electricity. No place to hide here, not in these cases. I began to guess their meaning, but suddenly I was gripped by the fear that there would not be time to find a place from which I could witness the nocturnal revelation of their secret purpose. Now I moved like a man pursued, pursued by the clock, by the ghastly advance of numbers. The earth turned inexorably, the hour was approaching. In a little while I would be kicked out. Crossing the exhibit of electrical devices, I came to the hall of glass. By what logic had they decided that the most advanced and expensive gadgetry of the modern mind should be followed by a section devoted to an art known to the Phoenicians thousands of years ago? A jumble of a room, Chinese porcelain alongside androgynous vases of Lalique, potteries, majolica, faience, and Murano, and in an enormous case in the rear, life-size and three-dimensional, a lion attacked by a serpent. The apparent reason for this piece was its medium, that it was made entirely of glass. But there had to be a deeper reason. Where had I seen this figure before? Then I remembered that the demiurge, Yaldabaoth, the first archon, odious creation of Sophia, who was responsible for the world and its fatal flaw, had the form of a serpent and of a lion, and that his eyes cast fire. Perhaps the whole conservatoire was an image of the vile process by which, through the eons, the fullness of the first principle, the pendulum, and the splendor of the plerome give way, by which the Ogdoides crumbles and evil rules in the cosmic realm. If so, then the serpent and lion were telling me that my initiatory journey, Aurebur, alas, was already over, and that soon I would see the world anew, not as it should be, but as it is. Near a window in the right-hand corner, I noticed the sentry-box of the periscope. I entered it and found myself facing a glass plate, as on the bridge of a ship, and through it I saw shifting images of a film, blurred, a scene of a city. What I saw was projected from a screen above my head, where everything was upside down, 
and the second screen was the eyepiece, as it were, of a primitive periscope made of two packing cases arranged in an obtuse angle. The longer case stuck out like a pipe from the cubicle above and behind me, reaching a higher window, from which a set of wide-angle lenses gathered the light from outside. Calculating the route I had followed coming up here, I realized that the periscope gave me a view of the outside, as if I were looking through a window in the upper part of the apse of Saint-Martin, as if I were swaying there with the pendulum, like a hanged man, taking his last look. After my eyes adjusted to the pale scene, I could make out Rue Vaucanson, which the choir overlooked, and Rue Conté on a line with the nave. Rue Conté split into Rue Montgolfier to the left and Rue de Tourbigot to the right. There were a couple of bars at the corners, Le Weekend and La Rotonde, and opposite them a façade with a sign that I could just barely discern, Les Créations Jacques-Sam. The Periscope There was no real reason it should be in the Hall of Glass rather than in the Hall of Optical Instruments, but obviously it was important for this particular view of the outside to be in this particular place. But important how? Why should this cubicle, so positivist scientific, a thing out of Verne, stand beside the emblematic lion and serpent? In any case, if I had the strength and the courage to stay here for another half hour or so, the night watchman might not see me. And so I remained under water for what seemed a very long time. I heard the footsteps of the last of the visitors, then the footsteps of the last guards. I was tempted to crouch under the bridge to elude a possible random glance inside, but decided against it. If they discovered me standing, I could pretend I was an enthusiast who had lingered to enjoy the marvel. Later the lights went out, and the hall was shrouded in semi-darkness. But the cubicle seemed less dark now, illuminated as it was by the screen. I stared steadily at it, my last contact with the world. The best course was to stay on my feet, if my feet ached too much, then in a crouch, for at least two hours. Closing time for visitors was not the same as quitting time for the employees. I was seized by sudden fear. Suppose the cleaning staff started going through all the rooms, inch by inch. But then I remembered. The museum opened late in the morning, so the cleaners probably worked by daylight and not in the evening. And that must have been the case, at least in the upper rooms, because I heard no one else pass by, only distant voices and an occasional louder sound, perhaps of doors closing. I stood still. There would be plenty of time for me to get back to the church between ten and eleven, or even later. The masters would not come until close to midnight. A group of young people emerged from La Rotonde. A girl walked along Rue Conté and turned into Rue Montgolfier. Not a very busy neighborhood. Would I be able to hold out, watching the humdrum world behind my back for hours on end? Shouldn't I try to guess the secret of the periscope's location here? I felt the need to urinate. Ignore it. A nervous reaction. So many things run through your mind when you're hiding alone inside a periscope. This must be how a stowaway feels, concealed in a ship's hold, emigrating to some far-off land. To the Statue of Liberty, in fact, with the diorama of New York. I might grow drowsy, doze. Maybe that would be good. No, then I might wake up too late. The worst would be an anxiety attack. You are certain, then, that in a moment you will start screaming. Periscope. Submarine. Trapped on the ocean floor. Maybe the great black fish of the abyss are already circling you, unseen, and all you know is that you're running out of air. I took several deep breaths. Concentrate. 
The only thing you can rely on at a time like this is the laundry list. Stick to facts, causes, effects. I am here for this reason and also for this reason and this. Memories, distinct, precise, orderly, of the past three frantic days, of the past two years, and the forty-year-old memories I found when I broke into Jacopo Belbo's electronic brain. I am remembering now, as I remembered then, in order to make sense out of the chaos of that misguided creation of ours. Now, as then, while I waited in the periscope, I shrink into one remote corner of my mind to draw from it a story, such as the pendulum. Dio Talevi told me that the first sephira is Keter, the crown, the beginning, the primal void. In the beginning he created a point which became thought, where all the figures were drawn. He was and was not, he was encompassed in the name yet not encompassed in the name, having as yet no name other than the desire to be called by a name. He traced signs in the air, a dark light leapt from his most secret depth, like a colorless mist that gives form to formlessness, and as the mist spread a burst of flames took shape in its center, and the flames streamed down to illuminate the lower Sephiroth, and down, down to the kingdom. But perhaps in that Simsun, that diminishment, that lonely separation, Diotalevi said, there was already the promise of the return. Chokmah, 